We are only going to be having about six messages from Ecclesiastes. There's no way I can cover it all by any means. So I'm sampling, as I am in Second Corinthians, various important texts. We started out with a very famous opening poem or hymn, you might say, in which vanity, vanity, all is vanity is one of the themes. Chapter 3, there's a time for every matter under heaven, maybe a familiar refrain that you've heard before. I'll explain that in a minute. And in order to focus upon this poem and then a verse of hope, I'll read verses 1 to 8, and then I'm going to read just verse 15, which gives us a glimpse of what may be to come. This is God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And then drop down to verse 15 to see the shift in a brief place. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Thus far, God's word, let's pray for his insight. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to think about these deep things and to think beyond them to the glory that the Lord brings to us in our Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. The way things are and the way things will be. Well, looking around the room, I don't see too many people that are about my age, but I will take a chance anyway and refer to something that refers back to the time probably of the 60s or so. There was a group called the Birds, and they sang a song based upon this particular set of verses. And it was entitled, turn, turn, turn. It was not a Christian group. And they were simply thinking about life and how times of life change and come back and return again. And everyone thought, what a beautiful song just describing the way things are. And that's what it does. It describes the way things are, but without a lot of hope of change of the cycle of life. We already saw in chapter 1 that things go around and around and around and never seem to go anywhere. Remember that? The sun and the tides, the moon, sun, and so forth. The French have a saying, and my French is not good. I'm going to use the English. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Maybe you've heard that. So therefore, there is no hope of anything different than the cycle of life. There is a time for everything, but I want you to notice that the way in which it's described is under heaven, verse 1. 
That's another way of saying under the sun, and that is a code phrase for looking at things in a horizontal plane. Not so much looking up, and not so much even looking forward, but simply looking around and seeing the way things are. Now, as we eventually will get to chapter 12, I'm going to talk about, at that point, what the author says are different sayings in Ecclesiastes. Some of them are called goads, G-O-A-D-S, goads, and some are called nails. Now, a goad is basically a pointed stick, maybe a sharp metal piece on the end, and you use a goad to get your cattle moving in the right direction. And so if you're driving your cattle, particularly to slaughter, unfortunately, oftentimes you would push them ahead. Paul was warned by Jesus not to kick against the goads, meaning he was kicking against that which God had tried to force him to see, that he was going the wrong direction, and he had to be pushed in the right way, and he wasn't listening. So the idea of a goad is something that pricks you, that moves you, that causes you to think and wonder and consider life the way things are. But then he says at the end of chapter 12, there are things called nails, and that's more like a tent peg. And a nail is that, or a tent peg is that which fastens down, let's say, a tent in the high winds so that you know it's staying there and not going anywhere. In other words, these are truths, things that are nailed down, not things that cause us to wonder, but things that cause us to conclude there is some meaning to life. And there are verses like that, even as we see in verse 15, as I'll get to later. Now, here we have these nails, partial answers to these dilemmas, but they're only partial. And we will see as the time goes on, the author gets more and more certain about it. But basically, we're looking at providence from an earthly perspective. Providence from an earthly perspective. Everything is kind of beautiful in its moment. Verse 11, we didn't read it. It says he has made everything beautiful in its time, and we will actually talk about this verse next time, I believe. There are things that are beautiful in their own time under the sun, under heaven, without any resolution, without things actually changing. We we are born, for example, and we die, as we saw last week. The genealogies in Genesis and elsewhere say, well, we're born, we live a certain number of years, and then we die and to use another French phrase, and I'll try the French this time, c'est la vie. That's life. That's just the way things are, the way things are. Simple descriptions of what happens in life from an outward, earthbound, horizontal, under the sun perspective. It's not making any judgment. It's simply saying people are born and people do die. For example, Does death ever go away? It doesn't seem to say so. Things are built up and things are torn down. Things are lost and things are found. Now, a helpful reminder here is that in Greek and Hebrew, there are two different ideas and words about time. The word season, there is a season and then a time for every matter under heaven. That's two different words in the Hebrew in verse 1. A season is 
chronology. Now we, get, we have chronographs, or a big fancy word for a watch. That's time just keeps on ticking, 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 as one song says, into the future. Time just keeps running along. That's time in general. That's history in general. But then there's the moment of time, a time for every matter under heaven, and that's when time is up or there's a time to do something. So, for example, this morning, I set my alarm, I think it was about 7 o'clock in the morning. So time was going on and on throughout the night, and suddenly, bing, time to get up. Maybe you didn't want to get up, but it was time to get up. And so that's the idea. Kronos is time running like this, around and around, and suddenly, boom, there's the time to do something. All right? The Greek also has the same thing, time in general. And then the moment of time, and as a matter of fact, we read Galatians that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born. So time was going on and on and on, and then boom, something new happened. We're going to talk about that too. But meanwhile, these couplets are all next to each other without any particular resolution or any particular ending. Some of you are familiar with the Korean flag, if you've ever seen it. It's kind of like two sets of half balls, and they're white, and they're black, I think, or red, I forget. I think it's, anyway, it's contrasting colors. And it's, the whole idea is it's the yin and the yang, that good and evil, white and black, are wrestling with each other. And nobody wins. Good will exist forever, but evil will also exist forever. And history is just the fighting of good versus evil, maybe God versus the devil, with no conclusion. And that is somewhat the way you see time being described here with these couplets. And they are just descriptions. They are the way things are. They're not commands. A time to love and a time to hate. Well, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute, but are those really equally ultimate, love and hate? Time to be born and a time to die? Is death going to last forever? These are the things we have to say are not answered at first. There are things that are created and destroyed. In the first place now, we see, for example, our lives. And this is verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. Now, we know this is true from last week. And he died. Our days are numbered. That's just the way it is. The second couplet is similar. A time to plant. And a time to pick up what is planted, you plant something so that there will be life, and that plant comes up out of the ground, and then you kill it so you can eat it. So it's similar in, in idea, a time to plant something, and then it grows, and then it's time to pluck it up, and then it's not growing any longer. Sometimes the word planting and plucking are referring to nations in the Bible. For example, a vine that was planted is Israel. And God tended the vine, and he was the vine dresser. And there came a time where he about, God abandoned the, the vineyard to the wild pigs, and they tore it up. And of course, that's the Gentiles taking away Israel into captivity or even into death. There's a time to plant Israel, and a time that she should even be uprooted. And therefore, it's simply saying this is the way History is. Now, there are other things besides lives, other things that are made and destroyed. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to heal, and a time to break down, and a time to build up. Death and destruction are a part of life, a sad 
part of life. There is pain in the world. There's also some comfort in the world. There is war in the world. It's not a happy thing what's going on in the Ukraine right now. But death does come in general as a penalty for sin. We find this in the scripture, you shall surely die. And from then on, God sometimes used death itself as a judgment, let's say upon Ahab, who was so wicked that his whole family had to be destroyed by God's command. God even killed Saul, who had started out fairly promisingly, but began to be proud, and God decided to kill him by the arrow of an enemy warrior at a venture. It was really God who killed him. The people of God who moaned and complained in the desert, they were told, you're going to fall in the desert. You were born, you're going to die. Your children will inherit the land, not you, with a few exceptions. And of course, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, northern kingdom, all fell under the Assyrians and under the Babylonians, and the destruction was great, and it was horrible to live during those times of conquest. And so we could think this is the way things are. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. And our response is in verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. When things tragically happen, we weep. When we have wonderful celebrations, we laugh and rejoice. Another way of saying it is there are weddings and there are funerals. We weep with those who weep. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. Weeping is even commanded in the scripture. David weeps over the death of his son. And then he got up when he was gone and said, look, he's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go to him. The people are to weep over their sins. James says, turn your laughter into weeping. You've got to know that you're a sinner before you can be saved. John the Baptist came. Was he laughing? Was he having a party? No, he came in sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because he was telling people they had to weep. They had to weep over their sins. There's a time to weep, isn't there? Actually, a pretty good reason for weeping many times in the midst of death or sorrow or suffering or repentance from sin. Sorrow over your own sins is a good thing in its place, isn't it? We know that we can see that God has plans for us. He will, as one psalm says, turn our mourning into dancing. There is a time to laugh. And perhaps we'll see what happens at the end. We also realize, therefore, that the way things are are simply a sad reality. We also find that we have things and we lose them And we see that in verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. This is very similar to the idea of planting a vineyard, by the way. If you want to clear a field, you don't just go out and plow in the field. They had lots of rocks in their fields. There are places in the Midwest, I suspect, they didn't have to do that. Perhaps around here either, if you have to look at the farm fields. All you have to do is plow. Sometimes the ground is a little bit hard, but not full of rocks. Well, over in Palestine, it's full of rocks. If you want to make a field, you have to clear the field of rocks. And then what do you do with the rocks? You build a wall around the field. Handy. You keep the wild animals out while you have your crops being planted. And so you might clear a field. 
perhaps. You might cast away stones and gather them together. You might build wine presses and guard towers and roads. We find other things also are being lost and found. Well, let's get to verse 5 first, part B, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There are times in, let us say, married life where you can rejoice in one another without interruption. And there are other times, as Paul reminds us, we need to, let us say, take a time for prayer or a time for self-examination, then come back together again. There's a time for embracing. There's a time for refraining from embracing. Sometimes you find things and lose them, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. You gather up all you have. You might find a precious treasure and you sell all you have to buy that precious treasure, as Jesus gives us an illustration. There are times where you give up worrying about it all and you simply throw it all away and you go on the road, cut your losses, declare bankruptcy, and start over. I've met people who are wandering on the streets and they gave up good jobs because they were tired of worrying and they simply go door to door. I've talked to one man who used to be a very successful businessman and decided it really wasn't worth it. Trying to pursue riches endlessly can be a hard thing. And you just decide to start over. But sometimes you lose things that are very valuable. And what are you going to do about that? I have a personal illustration of that. When I was a boy, my grandmother lived in a row house in Philadelphia. And she had many things up in her attic that were just mysterious to me. Uh, There were various pipes and various piles of stuff and chests and drawers and dressers and all kinds of strange things. So I'd like to go up there and rummage around, maybe to have a rummage sale, I would hope, someday. Well, I came across in one little bag. It was a small black velvet sack that was in one of those upstairs drawers. And I pulled it out. I thought, this is a heavy thing. I wonder what's in here. I opened up this little sack, and inside were probably about $20, $50 gold pieces. Now, I had never seen this before. I kind of figured these were valuable. I did a little calculation. One $50 gold piece today is worth about $2,000. So if there were 20 of these, that's $40,000 worth of gold in one little sack. I was astounded. I didn't know how much it was worth. I came downstairs with this gold in my hand and said to my parents who were visiting with my grandmother, what is this gold doing up in Grandmother Eckert's attic? And they pulled me to one side. I said, just put it back up there. Grandmother does not trust banks. So she put some of her most precious possessions up in the attic. I thought, okay, I'm not sure how good of an idea that is. So I took it back upstairs, put it back where I found it, And then some weeks later, I said to my parents, did Grandmother Eckert ever wise up and put those gold pieces in a safe place? And they said, no, come to think of it, very sad thing happened. Some guy was up there fixing electrical wires a few weeks ago. And when my grandmother went back up there again, the gold coins were gone. There's part of our inheritance flying away with the wind. So much for that $40,000, just like that. I found him and lost him. 
What sense is it to find if you're going to lose it that quickly, you might say. Around and around things go. You find things, you lose things. The truth is happening throughout your life. You find things, you lose things. You sell everything, you buy things again. Put them back in your house and so forth. Well, that's the way it is. That's the way things are. You can't keep things forever, right? How about sometimes you find things? In a wonderful way. Well, that's great too, but don't count on keeping it because, of course, you can't take it with you. Now, what's our response? Verse 7, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. What does it mean to tear and, and to sow? Well, most likely it refers to the idea that when you weep, when you are sad, you would tear your clothes. I know this doesn't make a lot of sense. But they would. They would say, I'm in really bad shape. I'm going to tear my clothes and sit out on the corner and be sad. And of course, we remember Job, for example, sat there with all of his skin problems and scraping his skin and just mourning and grieving of all the things that he had lost. A time to tear, but also, as you find at the end of Job's life, a time to sow. God gave him more blessings. Not that you can actually replace your children, but he did give him other children. And God gave him a chance to put his life back together again. Also, rending your hearts and not your garments, the prophet Joel says, because it's not just outward expressions of grief that lead to salvation. It is examining your hearts again, a time to weep, right? And a time to rejoice, a time to rend your hearts and not your garments. And then knowing a time to speak and a time to keep silence. And of course, this is true, you see it in the book of Job. Job's counselors should have just sat there and had the ministry of presence, as we call it. Just being with someone who is going through a hard time is often all you need to do. Don't try to complicate it with trying to explain things that you don't understand. A time to keep silent, especially if you can't have anything good to say. Proverbs says, a man finds joy in giving an apt reply. When you have something really good to say, say it eventually. How good, Proverbs says, is a timely word. But sometimes it is better just to be quiet. Well, you see, this is the way things are. You've experienced every one of these things, I bet. To one degree or another, depending on how old you are, you've seen all of these things. And you go, yep, that's true. Times of sadness, times of joy, times of losing, times of gaining. And then, of course, the very last is the source of it all, love and hatred. A time to love and a time to hate. Now, there is love and hatred in the world. We are even supposed to hate, according to Psalm 139, hate those who hate the Lord. doesn't mean we hate them personally, but we don't like sin. We don't like iniquity. We're not supposed to be like those who hate the Lord. We're supposed to not imitate them, but be in contrast to them. Of course, Jesus, using a bit of poetic license in hyperbole, says those who follow me have to hate their brothers and sisters and mother and father for my sake. It's a figure of speech. It means, by contrast, your love for God should be so much greater than any other loyalties that every other loyalty, even to parents or children, have to take second place. How often is that true for you? God does judge. God is said to be the judge of all the earth. Thus, this is the reason why God judged Israel, why God judged the fallen angels. There was war in heaven and they were cast down. 
There is war, there is grief, there is punishment for sin. For that matter, there is hell itself. The end. Is that good? Should I stop there? This is verses 1 to 8. Wouldn't that be great? What kind of hymn are we going to sing at the end of this particular passage? Well, it's not going to be easy because death isn't really the final reality. Is plucking up the harvest really all there really is? Is there any resolution? Is there any recreation? We see this in the way things will be. And I want you to see this in verse 15. That's why I read verse 15, because if you stop at the end of verse 8, not a lot of hope. Verse 15 says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, same idea, but God seeks what has been driven away. We lose things, God finds them. We are lost, God finds us. We are judged, but God saves us through his Son. God will bring things new out of his storehouse in Jesus Christ at the appointed time, at the time when history would come to its climax in the birth, for example, our Savior was born. The hour has come, Jesus would say, and now is, meaning this is the time of salvation. The time is coming and now is, the hour even is coming, when men will hear the voice of the Son of God and live, John 5, 25. There is a future, there is resolution, there is an answer, there is a nail as well as a goad. Is death the final reality? Well, God is, according to the scriptures themselves, a restorer and a remaker. Galatians 4, we read it a moment ago. When the time had fully come, Christ was born, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time had come, bing, the time had come. Simeon waited in the temple. He knew that the time would come before he died. He would see the Messiah, and he did, and then he died. Because he knew that he had seen, his eyes had seen the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 8, 80, verse 50, the root your right hand has planted. God planted Jesus Christ, so to speak, and raised him up for himself so that the nation may be planted again. When God uprooted Israel, he planted them again in the land, but he only planted the true harvest of his disciples when he rose again from the dead and implanted the Holy Spirit into their hearts and lives so that there would be new life. Where there was once death. See, I've appointed you, he says in Jeremiah to the prophet, this day over the nations, over the kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant by by preparing the people to repentance. Amos 9 says, I will plant Israel again in their own land. Never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So in the future, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the New Testament, we see the resolution of all these conundrums, all these problems and puzzles. There actually is a resolution. So therefore, we are born and we die, but guess what? Birth wins when you are born again, so that you will even not fear death. Planting and plucking, which one wins? 
planting winds because I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. You are to remain in Christ, and if you do, you will have everlasting life because Christ is raised from the dead, and therefore he's able to say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and out of those people whom God has sent to me, I will lose no one, and no one will pluck them out of my father's hand coincidence i think not the idea is no one will take us away from the lord remaking how about this one in verse three remaking is killing and breaking the ultimate israel was judged taken away into captivity they restored in the land the temple was destroyed it was built again it was destroyed again but the temple of the church the temple of his body built into his body The church is going to last forever. It is built, rebuilt, and established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Will God heal us or will we be lost forever? We sang a psalm, Psalm 44, very similar to that. How long are we going to be abandoned? How long are we going to be left? When are you going to wake up and save us? Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Isaiah 44, of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. And of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, I will restore them. And I think the best one, Isaiah 58. Your people will build, rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called, God will be called, the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets and dwellings. Do you feel broken down right now? God will build you up. Do you wonder whether you have a home? He will prepare a place for you with streets of gold and mansions in glory. Restorer of streets. With dwellings, Isaiah says, well then, does destruction win or does rebuilding win? Upbuilding wins. Restoration wins. Recreation wins. God is a restorer and recreator. And then what about things that are lost? Are those things, like my grandmother's coins, lost forever? Or will we have something even better And even more permanent, how about an inheritance in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal? Jim Elliott, who lost his life as a missionary, said before he died, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep or gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can lose our entire lives but have eternal life. This is the point. Will we give up everything that we once counted valuable and hold on to Christ so that he will be enough for us? The Lord had rejected Zion, but he will now embrace her again. The Lord gave himself up to gain what he would have lost that we might never be lost. Gathering wins. Keeping wins. It's not this equal birth and death. It's the reality that God causes those things that are permanent to endure forever. How about joy and love? Oh, yes, we grieve now. But our grief, according to John 16, 
will turn into joy. When the disciples saw Jesus being crucified, they would wonder what happened. And the third day would rise again and their grief would turn into joy, even though they thought everything was gone when Jesus died. Laughter wins. Isaac is a name that means laughter. When he was promised to Abraham and Sarah, they thought it was a joke. And they laughed skeptically, really didn't believe. But then a son was born in their old age, and boy were they old. They could hardly believe it. A son had been born in their old age. Nehemiah 9 says, Do not mourn, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now. You shall laugh. Laughing wins. Joy wins. Life wins. Of the increase of government and peace, there shall be no end. Peace wins. War will be defeated. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, joy wins, laughter wins, love wins. You win in Christ. Otherwise, you are lost. He will change, as Psalm 30 says, my mourning into dancing someday. You will attend funerals where your loved ones have died. But you will rejoice to see them again. And no one will take away your joy. This is a poem without resolution, but with a little glimpse of hope that God will seek what has been driven away and he will do so in Christ. I've taken the liberty to translate this poem into fulfillment in Christ and see what you think. There's a time for Christ to die and a time for us to be born again. A time for Christ to be planted that we might be harvested. A time for Christ to be killed, but that by his stripes we may be healed. A time for Christ to be destroyed in the temple of his body, we might be rebuilt as a temple in the Lord. A time to weep, that one day every tear might be wiped from your eyes. It's true. A time for Christ to mourn, that we might dance. A time for Christ to be scattered, that we might be gathered. A time to, for Christ to seek, that we might be found, though we were lost. A time for Christ to be silent before his shearers, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, that we might one day break forth in praise. A time for Christ to know wrath and anguish, separated from God, that we might have life and joy and love and reunion forever and ever. Isn't that worth waiting for? Shall we pray? Lord, help us not to be discouraged by the way things are, but to look forward to the new covenant to the way things will be in Christ now and later, in recreation, in reunion, in joy, and in love. Enable us to rejoice in you, even now, as we go through this veil of tears, in Jesus' name.